San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. Good evening, everybody. This is actually Richard doing the lead-in, not Joe, because our great friend Joe has a cold and a sore throat. So we told him to take the night off and get better because we got a busy week next week. We're going to be taping a couple of shows to air over the holidays so we don't have to have everybody come in here over the holidays. We're always thinking about our favorite engineer, Justin Hart. Right, Justin? Yes, sir. That's it. So Richard, doing the, well, I'm not doing the show by myself because I have a great guest. But again, best wishes to Joe to get better really fast from his cold and his sore throat. We didn't want him here anyway because the last thing anybody wants to get, right, Paul, is a cold and a sore throat over the holidays. That's for sure, Richard. And so there's our guest. That was him you heard. That's Paul Hines. Paul is one of our great sponsors. Paul is the CEO of Hearthstone Private Wealth Management. And, of course, he also um, does some great charity work with SeniorSafeAndSound.org, helping to prevent financial abuse against elders. And so he is our one and only guest, which is me and Paul in studio, no Joe. And, uh, Paul, welcome. You ready for the holidays, my friend? I think we can do it, Richard, just the two of us. I think we can. So you ready for the holidays? I'm, re- or I'm not? ready. I'm not. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I'm always so busy over Thanksgiving, you know, because of the turkey trot. Right. And then Mary's. I heard it was a huge success. Again huge success, and yeah, the turkey trot was, and we even got featured in the Wall Street Journal um, the Monday after Thanksgiving. I didn't see that, but I saw lots of other press. Yeah, it was really good stuff. And then with when you combine that with Mary's one of her tennis tournaments being in Hawaii, the Hawaii Open during Thanksgiving week. I guess my holidays happen during Thanksgiving, and by the time that's over, I'm so tired, I can't even think about the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, great time to talk so just, about... just sleep between now and January 1st, and you'll be all set for the new year. Yeah, I wish. I wish. Hey, great time to talk about wealth advisory, financial planning, and so on. End of the year, I know a lot of people make New Year's resolutions that center around finances, right, Paul? And then, of course, they have broken them usually by February. Am I, am I right about that? I think... That's probably typical. People do make resolutions or promises to themselves, and they often don't come to pass. So now here we are. We only have 21 days left in the year. might be a little bit difficult to jam everything into the next three weeks, but it might be some things that they definitely could take a look at and think about doing. Yeah, I want to talk about some just basic things, and then we can talk about some more far-reaching issues in the latter half of the show. But end of the year, some of this relates to income tax planning as well. And it certainly, I think, all relates to doing your own financial housekeeping and getting things in order before you hit the new year. Because if you don't do it before you hit the new year, you're probably not going to do it. Um, but we've got a nice little laundry list here of about a dozen things. Yeah, and people have to realize there are some things that just have to be done before year end in order to count. And when that ball drops in Times Square, the opportunity to do some things are just gone. So... Yeah, and you don't want to waste it. So, for example, just go down the list because this will be yeah. fun. The first one is contribute the maximum to your 401k. Obviously, if you don't do that by the end of the year, well, like you're right. You can't do it on January 2nd. Well, you could do it on January 2nd for 2017. But Exactly. And I think we can group these all these 12 things into three general categories. Okay. And the 401k is in the first category, which I call just tax savings. So everybody knows that if you contribute to your 401k, or maybe you don't know, that you get to that income is not reflected on your W-2, so you don't pay taxes on it. It's tax deferred. So you're saving money on taxes today if you sock that money away in your 401k. So I think 
my advice to people is put as much as you can afford into that 401k. You want to particularly make sure you're getting the maximum company match possible if you have a match. And then you know, put as much as you can afford into that 401k. It saves you taxes today and uh, put some money away for your future. Yeah, I know most companies, you don't have to do this pro rata. So if, for example, you're putting in $5 a month for the first 11 months of the year and you want to get up to $10,000 and you've got enough wages in that month, you can just go ahead and lump sum it all, right? In exactly. Most companies allow for up to 100% of your salary to be deferred so you can play catch up. Uh, and that might be tough from a cash flow basis because people do have to eat. But uh, take a look at what you can do and take a look at your cash flow and try to get as much of you can socked away into your 401k. Great idea. Next one, I guess, income tax too is um, harvest capital losses. Or my, my flip side of that, if you've taken some capital losses early in the year and you've got some gain positions you want to liquidate without any tax, that's the other side of that coin, right? It is. It's a two-sided coin. Let's talk about the losses first. Uh, most people, they might have losses in their portfolio. And if, if you don't sell the item that's at a loss, you don't get to realize the gain and go to, get to take the deduction. And there's two ways you can deduct those losses. One is up to $3,000 can be deducted against your ordinary income. And then the rest can be used to offset capital gains. And keep in mind that those losses can carry forward indefinitely until they're used up. Um, so the, the flip side of that is to take realized capital gains if you already have realized losses. Um, that might be a good strategy, considering that the tax losses get to carry forward indefinitely. You can always just do that next year. Um, you don't have to do that this year. Yeah, I mean, I think you would do that this year. For example, you're rebalancing your portfolio too, and you yeah, want to definitely. get the percentages in line where you want them to be. And Absolutely, Richard. That's a good point. If you want to rebalance your portfolio, you don't have to worry about taking gains on any positions that you're rebalancing. And, and then certainly you can always do that inside of qualified plans or IRAs and so on in terms of rebalancing. It doesn't matter whether you have gains or losses inside of those accounts because they don't flow onto your tax return. Very true. Very true. Anything that any trades or transactions you do inside of an IRA or four hundred one k aren't reportable. Yeah, because I, I had that question basis. last month. Somebody said, "I have this huge gain on this stock," and I, I'm like, "Well, where is it held?" He goes, "Well, in my IRA." I'm like, "Well, good. <laughs> Conversation over. Do what you want to do." Right. It does bring up perhaps one uh, disadvantage of an IRA. If you have capital gains in an IRA, it's going to be ultimately taxed as ordinary income. Yeah, people don't really think about that. But I think if you get enough deferral, if you have enough tax dollars investing for you over many, many, many years, I don't think it really matters on the back end whether you have ordinary income or cap gains. I agree. I think the benefits definitely outweigh that one, that one little yeah, disadvantage. I agree, too. Um, one other thought, though, maybe this is later on the list, but also on a, a stock with big gains in it. Um, if you do happen to want to make large charitable contributions at the end of the year, instead of using cash, if you do have highly appreciated stock, that's another good choice. And why would that be, Paul? Yeah, your timing is perfect, Richard. That's absolutely the next thing on the list. It is. Oh, there yeah. it is. Make a donation to charity. I should look at my list. <laughs> <laughs> Make a donation to charity this year and you get to deduct it on your taxes. It's a definitely a good thing to do and also tax savings technique. Um, and one great way to make a donation to charity is use appreciated assets. It can be any asset, including stocks, bonds, mutual funds, real estate. And you can make that donation to charity. The charity accepts the gift, and then they sell the asset, and they don't have to pay taxes on the gain. And right. you, you get the benefit of a contribution for the, for the fair market value of that asset. And one of the little twists, too, regarding required minimum distributions and the ability to contribute them to charities, how does that work? Yes. Uh, 
Congress made it permanent at the end of last year that you can make a direct contribution to charity from your IRA if you're over 70 and a half and you're required to take minimum distributions. That donation is obviously benefits the charity tremendously. You don't have to report that income on your on your tax return, so it doesn't create any other problems that you'd have that might occur if you actually have to show that income on your tax return. Yeah, reasons why uh, the additional income on the tax return um, might for example, cause other income to be taxed at a higher marginal rate. Once might, you add, yeah, might um, cause Medicare. Yeah, Medicare Part B, where, where you have to pay more, um, have more withheld every month um, because you you hit that, whatever that limit is, 155000 or whatever that that bracket is. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons. Right. The, there the might other, be limitations on your um, deduct, deductions. Yeah, for example, if the only income you had was a $40,000 IRA distribution and you wanted to give forty grand to charity in the current year, you could only deduct half of that forty grand that went to charity if you took the required minimum and then wrote the check to charity because of the 50% adjusted gross income limitation. Now, of course, that unused charitable deduction does carry forward for five years, so you might get it in future years, but if you do it the direct way, you don't have to worry about that at all. It's a tremendous advantage, and you can do that with up to $100,000 each year. And it's, is it IRAs only? That's IRAs only, right? It is IRAs only. That's yes. what I thought, yeah. Can't do it out of a defined benefit or profit sharing or pension sharing or pen, uh, pension plan. All right. Uh, so there are a few more things you want to yeah, continue well, on? Or? Yeah, you take the next one. Okay. The next one is just try to lump your deductions together. So, for example, uh, you may have had some medical procedures earlier in the year that have added up and uh, you're considering whether to have another procedure next year or this year, it might make sense to lump them all into one year so that you get the advantage of taking a deduction this year. There are limitations on deductions for medical care. Um, so if you're already at that limit, it might make sense to have that procedure if it's an elective procedure this year rather than wait till next year. Yeah, and a couple of others. You can do this with charitable contributions too. If every year you tend to be around the standard deduction amount, but you want to do something for charity two years in a row at once, you know, that might get you to itemize this year, and then next year you take the standard deduction when your itemized deductions are less. Sure. Hey, what? music is playing. Okay. So we're going to talk about some more ideas right when we come back. Stay tuned. It's your money and your life. We'll be right back. Thanks. All right. We are back with It's Your Money and Your Life. Some David Byrne and the Talking Heads. It's Richard Musio with Paul Hine. Again, we are Joe Vecchio-less. Because Joe's recovering from a cold. Joe Vecchio Light. Joe Vecchio Light, exactly. So usually there's two Italians in here. Today there's only one. Hey, Paul, um, we were talking about bunching deductions, another one people think about, but we have to be careful there. It's real estate taxes. You know how your real estate taxes are due on April 10th and December 10th, at least here in California. And it's similar to that in most states. So a lot of people maybe on the December 10th payment throw the one due next April in two. But I said we have to be careful because there's also this funny thing called alternative minimum tax, right? Right. The alternative minimum tax, otherwise known as the AMT, might sneak up and bite you there. Yeah, and what that is, um, we calculate tax two ways. You may not notice this on your tax return. You calculate tax the regular way just based on your taxable income. And then there's a special schedule. It's a Form 6251 where you calculate tax again, where you have to add back things that are called tax preferences which are beneficial tax deductions. And two of the big ones here in California are state income taxes paid and, and property tax. yeah, real estate property taxes. And of course, here in California, we got really high property taxes and really high real, uh, in addition to really high real estate taxes, even higher income taxes. So a lot of even ordinary taxpayers here in California run into alternative minimum tax because of high taxes. 
You know, Richard, while we're talking about all these exciting things to do before year end, I yeah. th there are two that I wanted to make sure we mentioned. Number one is make sure you spend some meaningful time with your family and friends before yep. the year end. Exactly. So that's much more important. And the second thing is schedule a review meeting with your tax advisor. Because some of these things are just so complicated, you want to make sure you get that good advice before year end. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's good to do that now, but I think it's even better on tax planning to do that back in October or November. Now, I know we can't go back in time and have people do that, but like you mentioned, we're running out of time. That's right, 21 and days left. 21 days left, and so sometimes when you're running out of time, if you give yourself more time, then you're not running out of time. Exactly. Like your idea about putting money, maxing out the 401k, you know, if you're a little bit short, if you spread it over the last quarter instead of the last two weeks, it might have been easier. Exactly. And a 401k is a deferral program. So you have to do that in advance. Yeah, Un in advance unlike so. an IRA where you can contribute retroactively. But yeah, those, those are good ideas because, yeah. um, you know, all of this financial the last, stuff The is last fun. thing on the tax savings is make sure you have enough withholding. Yeah, so penalties. penalties. Yeah, penalties. Um, you need to withhold an amount equal to last year's tax or 110%. Well, it depends on how high your income is, but um, again, yeah. you do that through withholding or making quarterly estimated payments. Right. And that, that's one other thing that you might prepay is your fourth quarter California estimated tax. But again, you would want to make sure you're not in alternative minimum tax if you make that decision because that's another add back for that dreaded. And again, my joke, Paul, always is in the old days, if we had somebody in alternative minimum tax, this would be 20, 25 years ago, that was big news. Now, out here in California, if we see a taxpayer who's not in alternative minimum tax, that's big news because everybody seems to be. That's right. AMT has crept up and, and snagged a lot of people these days. Well, it's because the rate's 28%, and as capital gains rates climb to 20 and and so on, a lot of folks with investment income just run into alternative minimum tax almost automatically. And unless unless your income basically is just really, really high wages, there's a good chance you might run into it in a state like California with high property taxes and high in state income taxes. And that's a great example of how complex the tax code is and make sure that you get good tax advice. Yeah, and I was reading um, President Trump's tax proposals about reducing rates. I didn't see anything in there about reducing the alternative minimum tax rate. I'm assuming they'll think about that later. But if one reduces ordinary rates but does not reduce the alternative minimum tax rate, we might not accomplish anything at all. That's true. That brings up a good point. There's a lot of speculation about what might become policy. And I, I think the best advice I can give people is let's see what actually becomes policy, and then we'll make intelligent choices around that. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, I think I, th I think the one thing we can say for sure, Paul, is we know income tax rates aren't going to be going up. Uh, that's a pretty fair bet. Yeah, and and whether they come down or not remains to be seen because we have you know a huge budget deficit. That I has do to remember be a promise sometime in the past something about no new taxes. No new taxes, right? And uh, I don't think that promise was kept. So, well, it, it depends on what you mean by new. It was the same taxes, just higher marginal rates. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes. President Bush. Yeah. So the, the next category of things to do before you end, I grouped into what I call tax planning. Mm -hmm. And one thing that comes to mind there is look at the potential to convert a regular IRA to a Roth IRA. And you'd want to do that for perhaps two reasons. One might be, for some reason, your income this particular year may be lower than normal, so you're in a low tax bracket. Mm -hmm. So you have an opportunity to take money out of your IRA at low tax brackets, convert it to Roth, and the Roth will never be taxed. So you're converting taxable money to non-taxable money. And also there's no required minimum distributions then from the Roth too, exactly. right? Exactly. Which is very convenient if you're trying to build wealth to pass on to the kids. Right, that'll help prevent your required minimum distributions in the future from being higher than, than what you might like. 
And so, are you seeing older people do this or younger younger taxpayers do this? Because I know once you hit about a certain age, it's tough tough to get to a break-even point. Let's assume you're 68. You probably wouldn't consider this that seriously unless, as you said, your income was so low. Yeah, I think if if you're going to pay a fairly steep tax on it, you want to make sure that you have enough time for that Roth IRA yeah. to grow. But if, if the tax rate's low enough, it, it really doesn't matter doesn't matter what the age. We're, we're looking at it at all ages if, if the tax rate is low enough for, for us to uh, justify it. Yeah, whenever somebody asks me this question, I say, well, tell me the precise date and time that you will die, and I will give you the answer. <laughs> when people ask me when they should take their Social Security, I say, th- I say the exact same thing. Yep. Tell me exactly when you're going to die, and I have the answer for you. <laughs> but, um, That's good. Another thing to keep in mind, some 401k plans now have a Roth right, portion, true. and it's eligible for Roth. So you can also do a conversion from regular 401k to Roth 401k. So you might check with your company to see if there is a Roth available and then ask your tax advisor if it makes any sense to do some converting. Yeah, exactly. Great idea. Hey, how about college planning? Yeah, uh, that that leads to the gifting um, under use it or lose it. If you have have an opportunity to make gifts, um, which is a wonderful thing to do, and I'm sure the gift recipients feel the same way. Yeah, those of us doing the show accept them. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Richard's going to give you his, his P.O. box right after right, at, exactly. right the end of the show. If you want to give me $14,000. Yeah. But again, that doesn't save any income taxes. People sometimes think it does. It doesn't. It's not deductible. No, right. but that $14,000, which is the gift limitation, at least under current tax code, um, goes away at the end of the year. So if you want to make those gifts, make them before the end of the year. Otherwise, they go away. It's, it's use it or lose it. Um, and one way you can make the gifts is to a 529 college savings plan mm-hmm. for, for kids, or a- actually for anybody. And it can be used towards college. And when it's used towards higher education, and it doesn't have to be college, it could be trade school, um, that all the earnings are, are come out tax-free. So that could be a big advantage. Uh, and you have an opportunity to lump Five years worth of gifting amounts. Seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, seventy thousand dollars. So five times fourteen thousand, and th- so you're pre, pre-loading or pre-gifting that amount. And there are some things to be aware of. You want to make sure that you don't continue to make the same gifts to the same person for at least right. five more years. Um, and the other thing is, it is a f- officially out of your state after the, after the five years have passed. Yeah, and, and one other planning technique, if you want to gift more than $14,000 per year per beneficiary, anybody who writes checks directly to an educational institution or a medical institution you know, for medical care for a child or grandchild, that's in addition to the annual 14000 a year. Again, you can't give the child or grandchild the money for them to pay the bill. But if, for example, you write the tuition check or you pay the hospital bill directly. You're so right, Richard. That's, that's not considered a gift. So if anybody wants to do that for my kids, I'll, I'll have my <laughs> contact information available at the end of the show. Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, one, one thing I did want to mention for people who work at companies that have stock options, from a planning standpoint, just might want to think about, do I want to exercise some of those options this year or wait till next year? If you do it this year, you're going to increase the income this year, so you want to be careful about that. Yeah, we're again, we're predicting that tax rates won't increase. There's a chance they might decrease. So, but again, it's t- as you say, it, nobody knows the future because of the fact that we do have expenses in the federal budget too that have to get paid. 
Hey, uh, flexible spending arrangements sure, yeah. too. One of, that's one of the things I was going to mention under the use it or lose it. If you're saving into a flexible spending arrangement, which means you're put, putting money away either for medical expenses or for childcare, you want to use that up before the end of the year as much as possible. There's an allowance to, for carryover. I think it's up to $500. Yeah, I think it's 500 now. That you can carry over into the first quarter of next year, but spend as much as you can this year because otherwise it's going to be lost. Yeah, and then one other comment from my end for business owners, um, to the extent that you're trying to reduce income, we still have Section 179 and bonus depreciation. So if you yes. want to add some fixed equipment and depreciate it immediately, again, business owners, you want to get that in service by the end of the year. They're playing music, which means we have to take a break. It's your money and your life without Joe Vecchio, but with Richard Musio and Paul Hines. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's your money and your life. Now it's time to thank our sponsors, which I'm going to do. Big thank you to UBS and Michael Caronta. Couldn't do the show without UBS. Also, we have two favorite CPAs, but they're very different. A more traditional firm, Polito Epic CPAs in San Marcos, and a more specialized firm, Jason Kruger Signature Analytics, a great CFO service firm. Also, our favorite bank, California Republic Bank just changed their name to Mechanics Bank because of a merger. Great niche market bank with Sean Puckett and Lane Elliott working with wealthy families and family offices. Neil Staley with Hub International, formerly known as Mars Maddox Insurance, a great employee benefits firm. Just got through the open enrollment season. I don't know, maybe the Health Care Act isn't going to stay with us and it might get easier in the future. Then again, it may not get easier. Who knows if you need great employee benefits firm, Hub International, also the LG Experience and the Lombardi Group, helping wealth advisors make heroes out of CPAs to the CPA's very best clients. Of course, our guest tonight, Paul Hines, Hearthstone Private Wealth Management, and Michelle St. Clair with Elite Lifestyle Management, helping those of us who have no time get things done from the very basic, like making travel arrangements, to the very esoteric, like being able to go fish in Cuba with our private airplane. Michelle St. Clair and Elite Lifestyle Management can take care of those things for you so you have more time to do the things that are most important to you. And then, of course, Michelle Lirac with the Very Good Food Foundation. We always do this show live in June from that dinner and a quarterly show about food use, food waste, and how to be more efficient and more green, shall we say there. And then Lestat's Coffee House, new location just opening. So now three locations for those of you who Need to drink some coffee, get some great food, or listen to some great music. Lestat's, Lestat's Coffee Houses. So, oh, also want to thank Courtney Holst with PopX Graphics, who does an amazing job on our website, iymoney.com. Again, you can look up the resumes and information about all of our great sponsors at iymoney.com. And a big thank you to Courtney for doing such a great job on our award-winning website. So, Paul Hines, we talked about some more, shall we say, detailed or nitty-gritty stuff to do before the end yes, of the year. Richard. Let's talk about some bigger picture issues. Um, the first topic I want to talk about is I read an interesting article. It was called Three Disruptive Trends in the Financial Planning. They call it industry. I prefer to use the word profession because it's not an industry. It's a profession. The three, respectively, we can talk about them in order. One is asset class integration. The second is balancing human beings and artificial intelligence. Although I know some human beings who I think intelligence is artificial. That's another story. And thirdly, people who love real estate 
and want to get some real estate integrated into the portfolio. So first topic, asset class integration. I know a lot of wealth advisors typically focus only on stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, right? Is that, is that changing, though, because there's other assets, deeds of trust, real estate out there that investors have an interest in? Yeah, I think it is changing, and I think people are becoming more and more aware of different ways to invest and different ways to earn decent returns, especially in a very low interest rate environment. So the opportunities are expanding. There are some limitations, probably some advisors. It depends on how they're compensated. Uh, if they're receiving commissions from transactions, they're probably not interested in going beyond the asset classes that will compensate them. Yeah, and that's challenging for some investors. So you certainly want to sure develop is. relationships with people who have, shall we say, a consistent philosophy about how they invest and how they can help you with what your goals and objectives actually are. Right. So you might want to find a, an advisor who is a true advisor. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, near the end of the show, about what that really means. Um, the second one, balancing artificial intelligence, if I say AI, that's what I'm referring to, and humans. Right. There's some really interesting companies that have popped up over the last few years. The one I'm familiar with is Wealthfront. Their, their real, I guess, value proposition is they talk about being able to reduce fees, asset management fees, by using automation technology, AI. Um, and, and the key question I think here is, I mean, I guess you could call them robo-advisors. Do, do people really want lowest cost or do they really want to interact with other human beings? I think most of the people I hang around with still want that human touch, th those relationships. I think you're right, but there is room for both. I've noticed that quite a few of the younger investors mm -hmm. that I talk to, they might be more open to using a service like Wealthfront. And Wealthfront is just one of many of the so-called, as you mentioned, robo-advisors, which just means that the decisions are being made by computer. There's an algorithm, and the decisions are not made by a human being. Yeah, and again, I think the human touch, if you're trying to make decisions that help you to sleep better at night, you probably want to talk to a human being, not to a computer. Decisions uh, can be very complex, and the algorithms in the computer can't deal with them. Yeah, and it, it's, uh, as I said, sleeping at night, but also issues surrounding family, you know, how you integrate children and grandchildren into your overall wealth plan. Yes, and uh, money is a very emotional topic, and when you interject emotions into decision-making process, it's not always a good thing. So there could be some decisions that you would make without that human interaction that, that may not be advantageous. Agreed. Uh, a third one was, it was just called hate stocks, love real estate. Sure. And, 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 and we're it, sitting here in Southern California, so I know a lot right. of people like that. <laughs> yeah, people that generally live on the coast tend to like real estate. The middle of the country, perhaps not quite as much. But anyway, that's brash generalization. But what I was going to get to is they, there's a term called alternative investments. And I often say that if you're a real estate investor, your alternative investments would be stocks and bonds. Mm -hmm. If you're a stock and bond investor, your alternative investment might be real estate. Right. But it does make sense to have investment assets that don't a behave the same under the same conditions or risks. And in our industry, we call them non-correlated and correlated a highly correlated asset would be something that behaves the same. Like, for example, two stocks probably behave very similarly, even though they're different companies. Mm -hmm. But a stock and bond is going to behave differently. So those stock and bonds are typically non-correlated -cor or lower correlation. And it, real estate is also considered an investment asset that's probably has a low correlation to either stocks or bonds. So it might make sense to have some of that in your portfolio. 
Yeah, and or real estate lending to the extent that one is being conservative, first trustee positions and so on, obviously, not seconds and thirds. If somebody wants exposure to real estate and have some income but not actually own any real estate, um, again, you've got sure, to be really careful about loan to, loan to value ratios and everything yes. else. But it's something you don't want to go into uh, lightly. You want to make sure you do your homework. But there are two sides to the investment coin, the, lend the lender who earns a return from the interest paid and the owner who expects to earn the return from owning the asset and eventually selling it. And with real estate, there are other benefits like depreciation and things of that nature. So, Yeah, well, a couple of other benefits, step up in basis. Well, of course, you get step up in basis when you die on any stocks owned too to fair market value, but you, you, you can basically pass real estate through the generations without ever paying tax, just through the basis step up. You don't have to sell. Uh, but secondly, yeah, depreciation starts over again when somebody passes away in a community property state actually starts at the death of the first spouse. If it's not a community property state, you get a step up for half of it. And so, yeah, there are certain, uh, shall we say, tax breaks in the tax code that are very favorable to owning real estate. But the thing I always caution people who have not owned real estate who want to get into it is it is a business. It takes your time or you have to spend money hiring people to run the business and spend their time on your behalf that you have to right. pay. It's not like being a passive investor in the market, stock market. There are, there are additional complications, additional costs, and definitely things to consider. Some people are, are not, just not good at being a landlord. Yeah, like my tenant who clogged up their toilet and called me to fix it. I'm like, you don't know a plumber? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're listening. I, I think they figured that you're, you're a CPA. You know how to do everything. Exactly. I know you. how to do everything. So, Anyway, those are the three disruption trends in your profession, Paul. Hey, real brief, can we talk about some of the charitable work you're doing? Sure, sure. Um, there's an epidemic of elder financial abuse in our country, and uh, I noticed that, and I wanted to do something about it. So I started a informational blog and website called SeniorSafeAndSound.org, and it's all spelled out, SeniorSafeAndSound.org. And on that website, there's great informational videos on how to protect yourself from scams, from financial abuse, from other types of abuse. There's also a blog with, with lots of information about what's the latest scam out there so you can be prepared to protect yourself. Uh, what I would tell people is you want to protect yourself at the point of attack because once the money's gone, it's gone. Yeah, and I want to make two comments. There's a scam going around now where the IRS, so-called, is calling people, saying they're right. going... If, if the IRS calls you, hang up, because the IRS is not allowed to make initial contact with you by telephone. It must be by letter only, by written correspondence only. So any call that you get from the, unless you have an audit going on and it's your auditor calling you, any call you get where somebody says, this is the IRS and we're going to sue you, that is a scam. It is. And I actually have two recordings on the website under the blog, The IRS Scam. Uh, we can hear the robocalls and actually hear what they sound like and how threatening they sound. So I, I wanted everybody to have the opportunity to hear it, to know that if you hear a call like that, it is false and it's a scam. An absolute scam. Hey, we got to take a quick break. It's your money in your life with Richard Musio and Paul Hines. We're going to be right back for the last quarter of our show. Sit tight. We are riding into the last quarter of It's Your Money in Your Life. With Richard Musio, no Joe Vecchio. Joe, get better. He's resting his voice, getting over that cold and sore throat. Our special guest and esteemed sponsor, Paul Hines. So, Paul, my uh, seniorsafeandsound.org, great, great initiative, great work you're doing there. The other one I always 
talk about is how the, uh, you know, I don't want to demean an entire profession, but how the healthcare provider always ends up supplanting the kids in the living trust as the beneficiary. Oh, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it can happen. There's undue influence. People, people can try to work their way into estate plans. Uh, nowadays, if a healthcare provider winds up being the beneficiary, it's, it's deemed to be financial abuse. Exactly. So they're going to be removed. Yeah. I, I don't mean to speak negatively about health because they do a great job. But we should with... talk about at year end, there's a, a lot of uh, effort by charities to raise money because mm-hmm. we talked about charitable contributions earlier in the show. But definitely be aware that there are some phony charities out there trying, trying to get money from well-meaning, uh, charitable-oriented people. And the other thing to keep in mind is some charities might be perceived as legitimate and they might be perceived by the IRS as legitimate, but they most of the money that they raise goes to fundraising rather than to the charitable cause. So make sure you check out the charities. Yeah, there's websites where you can go, at least here in California. Charity Navigator is one. Right, and you can also ask the charity to send you a copy of their exemption letter under code section 501c3. Yeah, do your homework and, and be aware that a lot of these charities try to sound like and look like legitimate charities. So be very cautious about where you're writing your, your charitable gift checks. So that's a good good, good uh, warning for this time of year and for any time of year. Yeah, any time of year. But uh, I mean, this is the time of the year. I mean, I get so many letters this time of the year asking for money. This is the time of the year. Yeah. It just, I'm afraid to open my mail. There's so many. <laughs> um, and if someone has memory problems, it can, it can be an issue because they could be writing checks to the same phony charity over and over and over. Yeah, I've seen that happen, actually, where somebody just doesn't remember and every month cuts the same check. So if you have someone in your family that has memory problems, help them out. Yeah, help with the mail. The other thing I've seen where I think it's really important to help um, a senior member of your family with the mail. I, I know when um, cognitive issues start happening, frequently mail doesn't get open. I've gone to visit elderly clients in assisted living homes and so on, and I'll look at their mail just as a favor, and there will be stuff not open, but for example, checks or distributions from the IRA or other things where they've never even opened the envelope and there's money sitting there ready to go to the bank. Sure. That's def- definitely one of the signs of there's something going wrong is, mm-hmm. for example, if their electricity is turned off at the house. Right. Forgot to pay the bill. They forgot to pay the bill. Yeah, exactly. So, Paul, let's get to a much bigger picture topic. Okay, let's do it. And you are a registered investment advisor. That's correct. So that means you have a fiduciary responsibility to the clients that you serve. And this has been a very hot topic in the profession. The layman may not know that this is going on, but what's going on here? Why, why is this so important? Well, what's happening now is, well, first of all, the Dodd-Frank Act required that the, both the SEC and other agencies come, come back with proposed rules that would require all financial advisors to to act as fiduciaries. And by all, you mean, for example, registered investment advisors, stockbrokers, yes. whatever the list is. Insurance agents. By the way, it even includes family offices, the indus- industry that I work in. Right. Yep. And we should probably explain real quickly that there's two standards of care by financial advisors. One is the fiduciary standard, which is the highest standard where the client's interest must come first. And the second is called the suitability standard. And that's required of stockbrokers. And the investment advice from a stockbroker needs only be suitable. It doesn't have to be the best. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be only in the interest of the But, but it could client. be, for example, in the interest of the stockbroker's firm. It could. Yeah. Proprietary products, for right. example. Right. So you want to be sure you know who you're dealing with when you're asking for financial advice. So what happened is the 
the Department of Labor, which is one of the government organizations, came out with rules requiring for all financial advisors to behave as a fiduciary, have that highest standard of care when they're dealing with investors' retirement funds. So I want to make that clear that these rules only apply to retirement funds. That would be 401ks, IRAs. Defined benefit, benefit the prop, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So certainly that's a limitation, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, because a lot of people have a lot of assets in those accounts. Sure. Yeah. And the, the reason that's the case is because the Department of Labor only has jurisdiction right. over retirement. Right. So it does only to retirement. The other thing I want to make sure people know is there is an exception allowed if the client agrees to it. It's called the best interest contract exemption. If, if the client agrees, then they'll sign a document that says that the fiduciary standard of care is not required. So there are definitely loopholes that have been built mm -hmm. into this, uh, probably because of the very strong lobbying of some of the larger financial institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so where does that stand? Right, right now it's supposed to go into effect in April of next year. And it's phased in, so the it'll be in full effect after January 1st of 2018. Um, but there has been some talk or some speculation that perhaps a new administration under um, now President-elect Trump uh, might want to change some of these rules w when they become uh, when they get into office. Yeah, so, and, th and so that's, just, that's just speculation. It is speculation. We don't know what's going to happen. So as we said earlier, let's let's wait and see, and then we'll make wise decisions around what we know. So a question, to get, to get your RIA, de RIA designation, what, how much work was that? I mean, how many years and tests and what, what is that process like? I'm just curious. Oh, sure. Well, to register, you, you actually have to file a registration statement with the, standard, with the uh, Securities and Exchange mm -hmm. Commission, the SEC. Uh, and it's a, fully, it's a full disclosure document. Um, the technical term is called a Form ADV. I, I don't know exactly what ADV stands for, mm -hmm. but it's a disclosure document. We filed that with the SEC. We, once, the, once we get a return letter from the SEC saying that that filing has been accepted, uh, then the registration is in, is in process and we can start providing financial advice. So the, our registration is not necessarily a credential, so I want to make that very clear. It is definitely not a credential. So in addition to that, some advisors such as myself have other credentials. Mm -hmm. um, I have the Certified Financial Planner credential. That took me three years to get, okay. and you can imagine it's six areas of knowledge. Each area of knowledge has 10 books worth of information. Oh, wow. And you have to master it all because the test can ask you, on, can ask you questions on any part of that information. Sure, sure. Uh, so that took me three years to get, a lot of study time, a lot of work time, and uh, in my 32 years as an advisor, that's probably the hardest I've ever worked on, <laughs> on getting a credential. Yeah, I remember doing the CPA exam way back yeah. when. Uh, which took me two times to pass, by the way, not just once. <laughs> hey, uh, another question. Um, this is for the younger people listening to our show, which there are many. Uh, my profession, the CPA profession, is a very gray profession. The average age of a CPA in this country now is 58. I I've read that the wealth advisory profession tends to be a much older profession, too, yet to me it represents a huge opportunity for younger people. Tremendous opportunity for younger people, and you're right. The, I think the average age of financial advisors is about the same, okay. about 58 years old. And there's, a, there's an effort afoot by the uh, Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards and other, other organizations, the Financial Planning Association, to entice and encourage young people to join the profession. And there are, there are now financial planning curriculum 
at a lot of different colleges and universities around the country, and that that's all new. So I think it's hopefully it bodes well for the future of our, of our industry and perhaps the the uh, certified uh, the CPA industry as well. Yeah, because I mean, I found that you really get to help people with things that are very meaningful to their life. You know, whether it's planning with their kids and their grandkids and how to have the family wealth move through generations or some of the wealthy families that I represent when we get, for example, into the charitable arena, you know, working with a family now, you know, on building some orphanages in Tijuana. And that, that's, to me, that's much more significant work than just helping somebody save 10,000 bucks of income tax or something. Sure is. It can be very rewarding. And um, speaking of being very rewarding, we're going to reward you for joining the show by saying thank you. All right. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate it. Joe Vecchio. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's always a blast. Great information for the end of the year and the start of the year. Joe, get better. Justin Hart, thanks as always. We miss you, Joe. We miss you, Joe. He'll be back in action next week. A big thank you to Craig Blanke, Dave Sniff, everybody for pitching in. It's your money and your life. We're going to be back next week. Have a great week, everybody, and stay safe out there in beautiful San Diego. Thank you.